Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 128 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I spoke with Jane Fisher, the co-founder and co-CEO of Harper Wild. Frustrated with the overpriced, hyper-sexualized intimate apparel industry, Wharton graduates and co-founders Jane Fisher and Jenna Kerner set out to launch Harper Wild in 2017 to change the conversation and create everyday bras that are ethically made, fairly priced, and comfortable. In this episode, Jane shares with us her journey from growing up in Florida, working as a hostess at a really popular tourist restaurant, to studying business and landing a job at McKinsey, to earning her MBA at Wharton, where she came up with the idea for Harbor Wild. She talks about the challenges she's faced fundraising from investors and how she had to change her pitch, how they landed on their product's price point, and why she hires for culture fit first. Thanks so much for tuning in to the show today. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, follow us on Spotify, and leave us an awesome review. Don't forget to check out our blog. We do product reviews. We've got really cool insights and information there. So go to www.stairwaytoceo.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Jane. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Doing great. Awesome. And so you're normally in Los Angeles. You're not there right now. Tell everybody where you are. I'm in Michigan today, actually, for some family stuff, but normally based in Redondo and our office is up in Venice. Oh, amazing. Venice. Venice is awesome. Awesome place. I lived in Venice. I feel like everybody has to live in Venice if you live in LA. Yeah, you got to... Do it at some point. Got to experience the West side. Yeah. Do a little bit of the grunge and then, you know, find your way. Right. Exactly. So are you from Michigan? Is that where you're from? I grew up in Florida. Don't judge. I'm still normal-ish, but um, my dad's family grew up in Michigan. So we're doing a little bit of a family reunion up here. Where in Florida did you grow up? I grew up on the Southwest coast on the Gulf side, an area called Sanibel. It's by Fort Myers, Naples. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Naples is really pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful spot. Very lucky. So before we kind of jump into what childhood was like and all of that fun stuff, can you just give, I guess, the audience a brief intro as into what is Harper Wild? Yeah. So Harper Wild, um, we like to say we take the BS out of bra shopping. So as someone who wears bras, I imagine you probably can relate to that. Bra shopping is just a horrific experience, no matter who you are. And so my co-founder, Dan, and I set out to try to change that. So we're an online D2C brand. We now sell underwear too, so tops and bottoms, but here to change the intimates industry. That's awesome. I actually think we met before too in person. This is like a really long time ago. You probably were just starting the company. There was like this event at 
an accelerator or some kind of like venture capital. They kind of had like a VC studio. It was super weird. And it was like, they had this one-off event or something and we were both there and I met you, but I remember the name of the company and I remember you, but anyways, brief interaction. I swear to, it's probably like 2015 or something. (laughs) 16, yeah, like something so far. Some random networking event yes. with VCs, Accelerator, that definitely Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so in Florida, what was it like? You, you know, what did your parents do? How many siblings did you have? What was your childhood like? Yeah, I mean, it was really great. I grew up, Sanibel is actually a small island. So it was a very casual, um, had a lot of freedom. And I have one older brother extremely smart. So he paved a really tough way to follow. He set the um, bar high. Yeah. He set a really high bar. You know, it was one of those where you like go to math class that next year and they're like, oh, you're Jake's sister. I'm like, no, no, don't, don't set. Oh, they're like, oh, you're going to get A's just like your brother, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, pressure. But yeah, it was great. My parents, um, my mom is actually born overseas. She immigrated to the U.S. when she was going to grad school in Boston. From where? She was born in Poland right after World War II. Her parents were Jewish in the Holocaust. And um, as soon as they could, they moved to Israel and then after Israel, Canada. And so she moved to the U.S. from Canada. Wow. She's got a pretty remarkable background. And then my dad is from Michigan. Both are very liberal and um, supportive kind of blindly in Mm -hmm. the coolest way possible. Anytime I came home with a totally different career path or thinking of what I want to do when I grow up, they fully supported and embraced and said, you know, as long as you're happy, we're here for you. That's awesome. So what was something that you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh boy. I mean, in the early days, I wanted to be a vet, you know, loved animals. And we took our cat to the vet and they did the temperature testing up the rear end. And that really just ruined it for me quickly. Took a <laughs> career change there in like second grade. I mean, the most like truly substantial thought I had was I thought I wanted to go into psychology in um, college. Then I realized I didn't want to go into academia or be a clinical psychologist. So went into the general world of business after that and tried to navigate my way from there. That's interesting. Well, so what kind of kid were you? What were you into? What kind of things did you do? Did you play sports? Yeah, super outdoorsy, big tomboy, played baseball. All the girls played softball, but I guess I was committed to playing baseball with boys. And it was, like I said, a small island. So a lot of outdoor time, beach time, kind of one of those where like you could bike to your friend's house and no worries about crime or anything. So a lot of outdoors time. Yeah. It wasn't like great at sports by any means. I did, I did ballet all growing up. I did gymnastics when I was really tiny and hit some stage where actually the gymnastics practice was too late in the day for my bedtime. So I switched to ballet that started my ballet career. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So you kind of realized around college time that business was something you'd want to study, right? Instead of kind of going down the psychology route. What made you choose business? Well, I was always really interested in how people behaved and why they behaved in certain ways. And I think I was just starting to understand the application of that to the business world that in kind of my naive view always 
meant psychology, you know, understanding humans and the way humans behave. But really the interesting part to me was that intersection with business. So why do people make the decisions to buy what they do or act in certain ways? And so I dabbled. I didn't, I wasn't in the business school in my undergrad but I was able to take some classes there just to understand. So I think I took like an intro to marketing class and that was really interesting to me. So it kind of scratched an itch. I didn't even know I had at that point I was coming to, you know, the end of college. And so my decision to veer away from a psychology path meant, okay, I'm interested in business, but I don't really know what that means. So I ended up taking a job at a management consulting firm, which was kind of was told to me as like a general business job where I could understand kind of the inner workings of the business world. Interesting. So what were some of the first jobs that you had either during or before college? Oh, before college, um, I think one of my first jobs was a hostess at a restaurant on Captiva, which is an island next to Sanibel. It had about 20 tables and one was one of the most popular popular tourist destinations there. So like two to three hour wait in the summer was pretty normal. And yeah, so spent a lot of my summers doing that. And then I think it was in my junior year of college, I worked in my psychology lab, I got a research grant to support me for that summer. Um, I was working on an, on an honors thesis um, to do in senior year. So I worked at a child development lab. So we were understanding how little kids learn languages. Really? How do they? Tell me. My husband's German and I've got a 15 month old. So I want to know. <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, I speak English to him and my husband speaks German to him. How's it going? Is he learning both? I don't, I don't know. He's like 15 months. He knows like three words, like okay. Nana for banana and like mama and oh, a few knows. others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the, my study really looked at how kids in the early days grouped items. So the way that they thought about like all fruits were together versus trucks and how they started with categories as a way to understand learning languages. Well, one thing you're probably familiar with that I learned in all of that is baby sign language. I had no idea that was a thing. That was pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm wondering, I always wondered, like, we haven't taught him like any sign language actually. <laughs> and I'm wondering, cause we were trying to focus on the words. And so yeah. I'm wondering, like, does teaching them sign language almost take them away from not having to learn and use the words? I don't know that, that that's kind of a theory. Cause I'm wondering, you know, I've met two kids that know pretty good sign language, but don't say a lot of words. <laughs> Interesting. Two out of two. Yeah. It's been a minute since I was back in that lab. So probably not the best one to answer it, but I think you might be onto something. Interesting. So you did a, you studied for your thesis, you're saying this child development language. What did you learn? What, what, What was the outcome? Um, it was like somewhat significant that kids started to put categories, um, different groupings of words into categories. So that was, that was, it was like a, pretty nuanced and a little bit nerdy, boring if I really went into it. But basically that was the hypothesis was that that was the way that kids were starting to, um, before they could really speak and learn full sentences, probably a bit older than where your son is at, but we would take different flashcards and they'd have to put them into categories if they thought different things went together. And for the most part, they did. 
so if they got potato, did they think it was a fruit or a vegetable? I'm just kidding. Or like, you know, the like borderline yeah, like tomato fruits that I don't even know. Right. Tomato, not potato, yeah. I guess. Right. Can they answer that for us? Exactly. <laughs> yes. You can answer that for us, please. Um, but yeah, there's like some borderline ones, right? Like you're not really totally. sure. <laughs> so anyways, so what happened after college? Where did you end up working? So I worked at McKinsey right out of college. And that, that was definitely, is that because that's just what everybody did? I feel like that's like the pressure to just go into a consultant. I wasn't in the business world. So honestly, I was pretty naive about, you know, these are the key consulting firms you should go to. I didn't go to any of those fairs. I was applying to some job that like somehow navigated over to that team. And it was a specific team within McKinsey that worked in the financial services space. So we dealt with a lot of big banks and credit card companies. So it was super foreign to me. You know, not only did I not really know anything about business, I certainly didn't know anything about the finance world. Yeah. Interesting. And so how long were you at McKinsey and what was your role? What was it like? I was there for five years total, but in my last two or three years, I moved into a different role, three years, my last three years. So in my first two years, I just did the traditional kind of consulting. And then in my third year, I had the opportunity to work with an internal team. So um, a group inside of McKinsey that was a lot of former consultants who were working to revamp the professional development programs, all of the training programs that you went through. And so at the time, I thought I would go to business school after a year of that. So I applied kind of on the internal process and got that role. And I absolutely loved it. I moved. I was living in Atlanta before. I moved to San Francisco for it. And it was the coolest experience because it wasn't this traditional trajectory. It was kind of this offshoot. And as you can imagine, with my psychology degree, it was all about how to develop people, but in the context of something I really cared about, which was like the world and corporation I was living in, understanding how the consultants got the training that they needed. And then on top of that, it you know there were different levels of training. You could get local training. So everyone in the Atlanta or Southern offices would get certain training, or you could get functional training, like everyone in marketing would get training, the same training. And then there were these global programs that said, no matter what office you are at in the world, if you are a manager, if you're an associate, you get this certain training program at this point in your career. So it dealt with all of those and they revamped them every five years about So um, I got to work with some really senior people that I otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity or exposure to and just kind of got to work on something I really cared about for the first time. That's awesome. And so how long, it sounds like you were there, what, two years doing that? I did it for three. So I thought I was going to leave after one year and I had applied or I had taken my GMAT and thought I would apply then. And then, um, I loved it. So I ended up staying for an additional two years. I was traveling all over the world. I was in my early twenties. It was very cool. So I just kept doing it for a few more years. That's great. And so how did you go from McKinsey to founding Harpo Wild? Like what was the, um, how did, how did you get the idea for it? Yeah, it wasn't from my experience in the finance world. That's for sure. I went to uh, business school and I really wanted to keep an open mind at business school, but you know, you still have to write these essays that say what 
you know, effectively you're going to be when you grow up. And so I chose Wharton because they had a degree in behavioral economics and they had a joint degree with the Harvard Kennedy School in Public Health. And I was really fascinated with the idea of applying these behavioral economic theories to, to the public sector. So that was really fascinating to me. I got to business school and got completely sidetracked and fascinated with the D2C world. Um, and it was just through, you know, kind of staying open-minded in the early days. We were in our intro to marketing class. They were talking about all of the D2C brands. You know, it was named the boring commodity product, glasses, eyeglasses, mattresses, razor blades, suitcases, socks. There was one of these cool millennial DTC brands for every commodity product in our life. And, you know, I was sitting there with uh, nice clothes, nice shoes, nice purse, you know, interviewing for whatever next thing. And um, underneath it all was a bra that was from Target about 10 years prior. There was a hole in the back band. It had just totally ripped and I was still wearing it. And it was kind of just this moment that was like, okay, we're living in a world where it's cool to buy razor blades online, but I'm sitting here not replacing my bra after a decade. And is there a good reason that on this slide I'm looking at in class, there isn't one of these companies for bras and kind of just thought, yes, of course, there's a good reason for that. I'm not going to start a bra company. I'm here for behavioral economics. It couldn't be more of a left turn from there. But so I just got curious and started poking around and learning more about the industry to understand really why there wasn't a bra company out there yet doing this. Um, and that's what really got the wheels turning. I'm curious who your professor was. Did you have um, David Bell as a professor? Yes, yes we did. <laughs> of yeah. course you did. I knew yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I know David. <laughs> Everything goes back to David Bell, I guess. You see, it goes back yep. to David. Yep. That's awesome. So you're sitting there kind of in class being like, kind of having this epiphany on bras. And so what were some of the first things that you did or first things that you researched to try to kind of like validate why you should pursue that? Like some people take the approach of, yeah, validating the hypothesis you have. I think we really took the approach of um, disproving it. You know, we said like, there's no way this is a good idea. We have no plans to start a company. In fact, we are pretty committed to not doing it. That's not really the career path we want. So let's go find all the reasons why this isn't a good idea and then move on. And so we looked at it from a few different angles. First, which... David Bell helped with was just understanding the industry, how big it was, who the competitors were. And, and even with that, you know, I found out how big the industry was, um, but I had no idea if that was like, is this a big enough industry to go into? Like this doesn't, you know, I'm so naive to this topic. It, it's just like, even that number, it, I, I have no idea what to do with that. So I kind of collected all that information. I remember sitting down in his office and saying, you know, it's a $70 billion industry. Here's kind of Victoria's Secret makes up over a third of it, which, you know, you could have told me at the time, really an incumbent is defined by over half, over 50%. But what was helpful to learn was one player making up over 30% of 
an industry that huge, and that is a huge industry, is rare. That's super, super rare. So then another angle we looked at was who are who are the new players and what's their angle and value proposition? So at the time, there were other D2C players, not as many as there are now, but there were a few already out there. But none of our friends or colleagues or family members were buying from them. So we said, you know, why is that? Is there a good reason for it? And a big part of what we learned in many focus groups and surveys that we did was price was a really, really key part of success. And it's pretty similar to razor blades, mattresses. You know, it's not a product that I'm showing off. The quality still needs to be good. Um, you know, I'm not going to buy a razor blade that's so cheap. It cuts me. Of course, there are those options in CVS and I don't opt for them, but I don't need the one with seven blades and an aloe strip and a rotating head with an extra grip handle. You know, it's like, okay, like I, this isn't, you know, and same with mattresses, you get your neck can't hurt in the morning, but I don't need to pay for the $5,000 mattress. And it, it was the exact same with bras. Women who were making bank were not caring about what bra they were wearing, it just needed to function properly. And what we found was the competitors out there weren't really focusing on price and that value-driven decision of the balance of quality and price. And the brands out there weren't really taking a stand in the market in the way we believed would be most successful going forward. And this was 2015, so it was pre-election, pre a lot of the movements towards women's equality and the women's marches. So a bit before that, but still, you know, you walk into a Victoria's Secret, it's this dark place with these very serious photos of women in corsets sprawled out in a really objectified way. And that, that felt off. So, you know, have you seen the documentary? I've started it. Yes. I haven't finished it yet. I have seen it. Yeah. It's, it's really crazy to think that all of these huge brands that were like, just, just took over retail when we were teenagers are really just dinosaurs. <laughs> no. yeah, you know, it's, it's really crazy, but it's cool. And it's exciting to see. So, so you realized that price was, and it was something that you wanted to solve for. How did you go about doing that? Like, how did you kind of land on your price points now? In a super nerdy way, we did a price sensitivity analysis with the help of some of the marketing professors at school, because you can't just ask someone, hey, would you rather pay $20 or $40? You know, it's going to be this value-driven decision where how good is the quality? What's the brand I'm buying from? So we did what's called a conjoint analysis, super nerdy to understand, you know, what that sweet spot was of what is she willing to pay relative to the value she wants out of the product? And we found that that sweet spot was right in that $35 to $40 mark. But one important part that we did after that was validating that that price point, at that price point, we could actually build a sustainable business that could make money one day. Because it's one thing to say, okay, let's make a $35 bra. But if we can't make a bra at the quality that she wants at the $35, $40 mark, then we can't build a business out of it. And so our think our th- thinking at the time was that's probably not feasible because otherwise someone would be doing it by now. And all those $20, $30 bras are kind of crappy quality. So there's probably a reason for that. And, you know, you look at an underwire bra, there's so many different pieces and parts. You kind of assume it has to be really expensive. So then we went about validating how much it would cost to make a bra. And really at the time, if you had told me it was, 30 cents, $3, $13 to make a bra. 
I would have believed it because I, this was not an industry I knew anything about. So actually we were cold emailing vendors from email accounts we made up. I mean, they were ours, but um, just to not look like we were emailing from our school accounts, just to understand how much it costs to make a bra. And the quotes we were getting, you know, we were kind of like, okay, it's crazy that we're having to buy bras for 60, 70, $80 that are just these basic bras. We could really build a business around a $40 price point and still be successful and profitable over time. That's interesting. But um, yeah, and taking that approach is really important. I think a lot of founders actually don't do that homework. (laughs) Um, They're just like, I hope this works. (laughs) I think this is a good price. I don't know about my margins. But yes, these are all really important things to figure out. And kind of speaking of bras, so I'm actually wearing the, what's it called? The lounge triangle, which is super comfortable. It's like my favorite one. It's like this ribbed kind of gray. It's the dark gray one, which I love the kind of charcoal color. And I love the um, the triangle. Like it's very low cut, which is awesome. I have a few others too. I have the lounge scoop, which is really comfortable and the bliss triangle and the bliss. My question is, I got these and they're all, the fabrics are so nice. They are so comfortable, like all these positive things about them. And then I'm wondering, all of them don't have any padding. Why? Well, we listen to our customers. So a lot of our product designs are dictated by um, customer feedback. Either it's, you know, the triangle shape, for instance, we started with just the bliss as it is, or the scoop. And as you just said, uh, the triangle allows it to be much lower cut, thinner straps. That was all a direct result of customers either proactively writing into us or we're running surveys all the time. So that was one of the top silhouettes we heard. It was like, I love the bliss. I'm obsessed with it. I can't stop wearing it. But, you know, it's pretty high neck. It shows underneath a shirt that I'm trying to wear or the straps are too wide. And same with padding. So those inserts that a lot of bras have, the vast majority majority of women said, I don't want that padding. And like, honestly, I feel really bad when I have to take it out and throw it out. That said, there is a group of people who want it. Will we ultimately make a bra that includes it? I'm sure we will. And there is our like lined t-shirt bra, which is our base bra. And it's um, one of the most popular styles. It's the most popular underwire style that does have that foam cup that you're talking about. Yeah. I just thought it was fascinating because, well, and then that makes me curious what percentage of your customers are smaller chested. Cause I also feel like, Hey, that's probably a reason that helps give a little more cushion, but also when it's cold out, right? Just like the change in temperature alone. So I don't know. I was really thrown off because I I haven't, I don't think I have a single one that does brawl in my life that hasn't had a, a layer of some, some sort of like padding to, you know, achieve those things. So I thought it was really, really interesting that, you know, out of four brawls there, none of them had that. So I was just curious, obviously I'm sure I had a feeling it was definitely customer feedback, but I'm curious also too, like, what the majority percentage of chest size women, I guess, are ordering from your brand, if you know. Yeah, we definitely skew larger, which is in line with the whole country demographic. So I think a lot of times these D2C brands that we are, we look on the coast and we look at that customer. And really, we've built a brand at a price point that speaks to 
the whole market. And that was always our vision and our growth strategy for the brand was we weren't just going to be a niche positioning that would only appeal to the coastal elites. You know, it would appeal to the masses. We wanted to replace Victoria's Secret and Victoria's Secret, as I mentioned, represents 30% of the market. And there's a reason for that. And Victoria's Secret has like padding and everything. Like, I don't think they have a single bra without like (laughs) triple padding. Yeah. Yeah, We, and they don't have larger sizes either. Right. Um, So So how do they, they own such a huge percentage of the market though? Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, we are we skew much larger. So um, most recently, we introduced 4XL because typically in a size curve, you see drop off at the end. So demand across each size, the smaller size is extra small and the larger size on your size scale. For us, it was 3XL. You would see a drop off. And then there's that traditional bell shape in the middle, medium, large section. You have the most demand for us it didn't drop off at 3XL and it still doesn't. So we just recently introduced 4XL in the Bliss and the 4XL is selling even more than the medium and large. So it's pretty exceptional to see. And your point is a totally valid one that those women, more so than the smaller breasted ones, don't prefer the padding. And actually we launched the company with three bras, one of which was a push-up bra. And since then, we still have some of them, but we're not buying back into those uh, because it's a really low demand style. And again, we listen to our customers and I think a lot of styles and just the, the way we think about dressing today, cleavage is less popular. Actually your nipples showing free the nipple, right? It's less, less of a big faux pas if that's the case. And so those trends have allowed us to navigate away from the push-up bras. We listen to our customer and more toward these wireless styles. I think also the pandemic really had an impact. Right, right. Yeah. Push-up bras are not comfortable for anybody. Right. We're also wearing looser clothing. So wearing a bralette that doesn't have wires underneath it is more acceptable. That's awesome. Well, the fabrics are really, really, really nice. I really loved I love all of the fabrics on all of them. Really stretchy, very breathable, just like something that you want to wear all day. And so what has, you know, when you guys were first starting out with these three bras that you decided to launch with, what what was kind of your go-to-market strategy and what were some of the first metrics for success that you saw early on? So we did a big PR push in the early days, and then we really tried to build word of mouth so we were seeding product in different places. I remember going to like, I think it was the USC campus earlier on and visiting and pitching there to different groups of, of college students. Um, we were seeding it kind of, I think we called it like a corporate ambassador program because we realized coming out of business school, we had friends who were at Facebook, Google, Airbnb, Lyft, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, McKinsey, Bain, and we could easily just send them product. And then people in the office would start to see that. And then we quickly realized that we really needed to focus, that you could do any channel pretty well, as long as you put the focus toward it. And by that, I mean both energy focus, resource focus, um, and financial efforts too. So, you know, if you have a finite budget for marketing for that month and you spread it thin across all these different channels, 
that is not as successful as putting it all toward one channel and figuring out that one. So we quickly started to focus on our Facebook and Instagram ads as, as our growth channel. And the metrics that we were looking at, of course, we were following CAC pretty closely, AOV. Um, it was really early, so we weren't as closely looking. I mean, we we're looking at repeat rate, but weren't having big expectations that, you know, within the first month, people would be repeating right away. And just general um, growth. So we were really trying to focus on right out of the gate, making sure that we were growing at a steady rate month over month. So what did fundraising look like? When did you guys start fundraising? What was that fundraising path like? And what were some of the challenges that you faced along the way in trying to raise money for D2C bra brand from a bunch of uh, mostly male investors? Yeah, I mean, you said it right there. It was quite the journey. I mean, and it has changed. That was five plus years ago now. And, and since then, I think we have made a lot of progress but uh, there's still some work to be done for sure. But the comments that were made in the early days to us, I don't think would ever fly in today's world, which I'm, I think the most common one, which everyone thought was super unique when they said it and creative was, oh, a broad company. Are you making them easier to take off? No. Just, yes. And it was all, it was no woman ever said that. So Obviously, a lot of old men thought (laughs) that one was hilarious. Oh my gosh. And that was a a common one, it sounds like, but they all thought that it was a unique one. Like no one else came up with it. Yeah. And then at the time, which is so funny to look back on, we had a slide in our pitch set that had a photo. You know, of course, we chose a very egregious one, but a Victoria's Secret model in like cat ears and like literally a bra with fur on it. And, you know, she was doing this like incredibly sexy pose with her arms behind her head. And right next to it was our model who, you know, was your, you know, looked like your friend or you, it was just like a normal woman who um, had her hands up in a similar position, but throwing up peace signs. And she had these goofy sunglasses on and just a normal t-shirt bra. And we said, here's the market leader and here's the modern woman. And can't you see the difference there? And that's what kind of started the pitch. And it it made it, for the most part, kind of like really in your face about like how ridiculous this brand was who dominated the industry. But I went to one meeting and the guy, and he was like pretty young guy because we didn't make it to anyone higher up yet. And he was like, but she's hot. Like, doesn't everyone want to be her? Like, I don't get it. And like, and not like, I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? But just like, it's never going to work. And now seeing how Victoria's Secret has fallen, it's pretty funny that it's not funny. Well, hopefully he watches the documentary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so. Oh my gosh. That's really funny. Yeah. That, it was a interesting time. The pre me too movement. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. But you said it's gotten better. Well, there's also a lot more female VCs, I think, and there's a lot more funds that are consumer focused and female friendly. Yeah, there are. Um, I think at the time and even sometimes today, there's one token woman, it feels like, who has made it to the top. Oftentimes, you know, you're kind of looking to that person in the meeting because you're like, you'll get it. You'll, you'll explain it to these guys. And they're often, they're, they're trying to make it too. You know, they're fighting like crazy to be successful. And so they're fed every tampon bra company in the book. Oh, this is a female brand here, female. So like, it's got this weird dynamic. And then the men are like, well, my wife wears La Perla. We're like, 
your wife is a little, yeah. Does she want to be, or is that why you're just buying her? Yeah, exactly. But one thing we realized, we used to pitch it as very like, let us take you on the bra buying journey as if you had to buy boxers the way we buy bras. And it kind of broke the ice and it really got them into the details. You know, it's like, imagine you go and there's um, all these different options for you to pick from the push-up pair. And then we had like some joke, like we had this video that had all these jokes, like the family jewel collection. Um you finally pick some, you go try them on in the dressing room. Someone comes in there and make sure everything's fitting just right. You finally check out at $70 for a pair of boxers and you go and you put them on underneath your suit for a big meeting the next day and they show through your pants. And we would take him through that journey and say, how crazy is that? That world would be insane if you had to do that. Right. And it didn't really work, honestly. And I think because it, it was too in the details and it wasn't pulling back back big enough. And we, with the help of an advisor, really changed it away from like, think about the nuances of the intimates industry. And instead, look at retail more broadly, kind of how you and I started this conversation. Like, look at every commodity in our life. There's one of these cool millennial brands that has completely replaced these archaic retail stores. So Sleepy's has been replaced by Casper. Dollar Shave Club has replaced Gillette. You know, the names go on and on, but no one has replaced Victoria's Secret. So now you're positioning these investors. Their minds are now in the place of all of these successful big brands. And you're kind of saying like, I'm not talking about the details of my nipple showing. I'm talking to you about how the retail space is under this larger paradigm shift. And this will, of course, be the next industry to follow suit. And that that really made them think bigger picture. We're the next billion dollar company. And that's really when the pitch started working. That's awesome. Great and great advisor. It sounds like you had there. Yeah. Very, very helpful. That's awesome. Yes. I focusing on the trends of where things are going and what has worked in the past and and relating that is super helpful, but kind of removing that piece with kind of trying to relate to the male investor. (laughs) Um, I can imagine that was a very entertaining struggle. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Some good stories for the book. (laughs) Exactly. So Tell us about, you know, how big the team is, how hiring has been and what tips do you have? Hiring. Yeah, that's been, I mean, you can imagine with COVID, it's been all over the map. So our team is just over 20 now. We are about one third totally remote living in different states and about two thirds are in LA and we come in about twice a week now. And hiring just depends on the role and what phase we're in during COVID. So there are times when, you know, we'll post a job posting and we get so many applicants, um, we get so many referrals from different people in our network, tons in LA, tons all all over the rest of the country. Um, And there are other times where it, it takes us months and months to find the right person. I think the biggest learning that we've had is that culture fit really, really matters at the end of the day. So now a part of our interview process, we actually do the culture fit part upfront because it's really painful for us and for them if they've made it through, you know, a project and all these interviews. And then we do the culture fit piece and it, for some reason, it's not looking like it would be a good fit, but especially in those early days, you know, being only 20 people. And very recently we were 
10, each new addition makes a huge difference to the culture, hopefully in a good way. So defining what your values are from a culture standpoint and asking specific questions during the process to understand where those people fit values wise um, has become more and more important in our eyes. How do you filter for culture? How do you do that? So we define, we have three values, hunger, humility, and an ownership mindset. And then we ask questions, um, you know, some of those behavioral questions to to understand uh, how people embody those values or not. And having someone talk you through a scenario that they've been in, it's really about what they're like explicitly saying and more about kind of what you're hearing and how they deal with different situations that can really clue you in to to the way that they behave, the way that they think. And one of the biggest things I've learned is that it's near impossible to actually know how someone will be until they're they're in another advisor gave us that advice. It's like, you're going to over-engineer it and you're never going to know until they're there. And when they're there, if they're not a good fit, you need to cut ties really quickly. That's an important part of it. But one big thing I think I've personally taken away is your gut is so often, right? If something feels off, it almost always is. And it only, you know, sometimes you tell yourself, well, you know, it'll be okay because X, Y, Z reasons. And it almost never is. It only ever gets worse over time. So listening, and it's, it's hard not to listen to that gut because maybe, uh, maybe everyone else feels otherwise, maybe everything else about their interview process has been unbelievable. Maybe it's been really, really hard to find a candidate and you've been working months and months and this person is pretty promising. So you want to just ignore that little red flag or that little voice in the back of your head, but it's, It's so much harder to let someone go and find someone new than it is to just wait a little longer and find the right fit. So does that mean you've kind of learned to only hire someone if it's a complete hell yes versus the, you know, to kind of follow your intuition versus like having kind of these doubts a little bit early on and then it ends up proving itself out that it, that you doubted things for a reason. We have learned to like, we're, we don't say it that way, but yeah, pretty much it's like the people who are involved give their feedback. They're looking for certain things along the way and we're a hell yeah, by the time we're ready to give an offer, it's too time consuming to replace someone to do anything else. And yeah, you, you know, you just learn when it's not a good culture fit. And that doesn't mean everyone has to be the same personality coming by any means. We certainly look for diversity of thought, diversity of personality to help balance the team. It's not at all about finding that same person who will fit in just like everyone else. It's just about making sure that we can all work well together and actually get to solutions quickly and move fast like we are. What are some of the lessons that you've learned as CEO, just growing you know, personally and professionally? How have you kind of grown into a leader? The startup world has taught me a lot about scrappiness and ambiguity and about people saying something can't be done. I now find that to be not a challenge in an in a like playful way, but I find it interesting when someone says, oh, that can't be done for this reason, because that to me sounds like 
an incredible opportunity. It means so many other people haven't gone down that path and that there's probably something there to change because nothing that we're doing as a human race is going to stay stable. We always need to be evolving and thinking about how we can innovate. Um, And so to say something can't be done kind of just to me is a flag of some sort of, you know, okay, let's try to really change that. And COVID, I oversee our ops and supply chain. So COVID has been fascinating in that way, you know, just being on the forefront of seeing all these things changing. I think the other thing I've really just, I always, I always feel continues to be the case is at the end of the day, it's humans who are doing these jobs and it's about the relationships. And I'm not just talking about our team, of course, our team, but our vendors, the people sewing our bras are humans who, if they know about and understand our brand, and if we care about them, they're going to care about our product a lot more. Same with the people who during COVID were trying to figure out which containers we're going to get on the ships or on the flights or not. And were we going to get product here or not? Same with the people at our warehouse who are picking and packing our bras. So I think it's just really important. It's sometimes hard to quantify that relationship building time, um, because especially when things are just a total shit show and you have no time to do anything, having those pleasantries or taking the time to go to lunch with someone when you're visiting seems like, you know, you don't have time for that. It's not absolutely business critical, but it's almost always played out over time that it's because we had that separate conversation where I learned about something personal about them. And then that led to a relationship that we have where we text about stuff. And then ultimately we can't get a hold of them during the pandemic. And I can send that text. That's like, Hey, any chance our goods can get on the next flight? And they do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Relationships are super important. (laughs) Like you said, with the vendors and your employees, What's one of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in building a business? You know, I think a lot of people have an idea of what it's like to build a startup. And, you know, I know there's challenges that happen every day, but what's one of the biggest challenges where you really maybe questioned whether or not this the business would survive or that you could find that solution or that was something totally unexpected or a time that you failed, you know, in being a leader or failed in some way? Like what's, what's some of the biggest challenges you faced? I mean, fundraising is the first thing that comes to mind. And I think part of it is a bit of expectation versus reality. The stories that we hear are not only the, like we, the broader we in PR are not only the successful ones, because of course, fewer stories are written about the company that couldn't raise the Series A round. It's way more glamorous to write about the company that did raise the Series A round. But almost always when you actually talk to that founder, the story that was written in TechCrunch was nothing like what actually happened. It was never that clean. It was never that simple. And so I think that's really tough. And I always like to talk about that because I hope it changes what the expectation is it's really, really hard to fundraise and not just for women, for men too. I talked to so many guys who are trying to fundraise and are having a really, really tough time. And I think what's hard about it is it's not, this is really counterintuitive, but it's not directly or even sometimes remotely correlated with your ability to operate the company well. So you can be a great operator and make great decisions or know how to build a team, hire great people, 
how to create a strategic vision, but not know how to fundraise. And I think one of the most honest comments I got from an investor one time, we were talking to a VC fund and I asked what he looked for in founders and he said, good fundraisers. And I was like, honestly, yeah, like that, because nothing else matters. It's until you're profitable. If you can't raise money, nothing else matters. You're going to go under, you, you need the money to survive. And it took us a while to figure it out. And we got, we were so lucky. We got help from people who coached us. And, and I mean, like we used to be doing it uh, one way, you know, like now we're what? doing it. I know the one example you had of, of your pitch, but like, what are some of the key things you learned about fundraising so that entrepreneurs tuning in, maybe going out for a round, what's some of that advice that you have from lessons learned? I mean, if you're in sales, you're probably pretty good at it. I think I was never in sales before, so there's probably a relationship there, but I think so. So one of the, it's, it's like really in the, the details a bit when it matters, but one of the biggest things that I learned was you're kind of in this position at first where you're thinking, okay, I need to sell them on why they should invest in the business. And in reality, they should be selling you on why they should invest in you. And that's hard to really embody because especially in the early days, you just have an idea. So you have to be wildly confident to be like, you tell me why you get to invest in me. Well, like people are about to not get paid, right? Like you, like you gotta be pretty bold to have that attitude, but that's basically the attitude that you need to at least exude. And that confidence just makes investors feel really confident because they're not sure either. And so they really want to invest in someone who is sure. And there's a lot of a lot of investors who are just following others. And we've gotten, I think like when we actually took the mentality of like, you know, let's interview you. You tell us why like we should work with you until this company exit somehow, because that's a long journey and you want to work with good people. And we're really lucky because we started to do that. And we have great investors who are really good people who we're so happy to chat with when we do. It's a really great experience for us. But I think that attitude is like at the heart of all of it. And then that shapes all of the details down to how quickly you respond to emails, how much information you give. It should be on your terms. So I used to think, okay, well, I'm a buttoned up co-CEO. If they email me um, asking for 20 different items, I should be responding very fast with all of those items. And in reality, it's actually the opposite that's more effective. It's like, here are the things I have off the shelf. I'm not going to create extra work for you. Because I'm not here to like work for you. You're here to tell me why you should invest in our billion dollar idea. And I am going to respond on my time. Um, you emailed me in the middle of the night. I'm not going to respond in the middle of the night. And I have a big day full of meetings tomorrow. I'm not going to cancel those meetings and create this work for you. I'm going to answer it two days from now when I have time for it. And that I think just brings a different level of confidence to, to the dynamic of the conversation. That's interesting. So level of urgency and response is um, a factor. Definitely bold and confidence. I mean, even from my own experience fundraising, I've said some wild stuff and you really have to be 
that they really, you're right, they don't know whether or not you're capable or the business opportunity is really there. And it's your job to convince them that it is. Yeah. And yeah. And they need to feel like you are capable of pulling it off. Yeah. What kind of stuff did you say? Oh, I said some wild stuff. I mean, I I told my first angel investor, I was uh, raising my first like pre-seed round and and, um, I was on the phone with him and he's like, you know, I'm just going to, let me know when you're raising your seed. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to pass on this round. And I said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. Like you laughed (laughs) and I, and it shocked me so much that he laughed. And then when, but when he laughed, it opened up everything to me. It really showed me that investors want that crazy side of me. They want that craziness because that means that I'm crazy enough to pull it off. And it just was, it so shocked me because I thought for sure by saying that he may never want to talk to me again. And if he doesn't find out, I care because I'm annoyed that he's going to, yeah. he just said no anyways. Yeah. Right. And so I just said this kind of like, if you, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're missing it. Out. You're missing out, you know? Yeah. And then he was like, okay, fine. I'll <laughs> literally it's okay, fine. I'll That's put in best example. 25K, whatever it was. Yeah. Right. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was like, fine, I'll send you the paperwork. And I click. And I was like, I couldn't believe what just happened. What just happened? But that, like I said, just opened everything up where I was like, wow, these people are crazy. They're really like, so they're insane that they want to see this and hear this from me. But then once I knew that I could, I started saying more things and having that boldness and it worked. It's the only reason I I got funded. Because being I, I a female completely... back in that day, like 2000, was it 14? Oh my God. Yeah. 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 That was, I was, you know, part of the less than 2% of women getting venture funding, you know? I know. And it's the only reason I why. Well, you kind of have to hit that rock bottom a bit now that you were at rock bottom, but this place where you're like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to say this crazy bold thing. And then you get those successes and you're like, wait, that actually works. And then you start, to do it a lot more, but yeah, I mean, the, the best advice we got was someone who like coached us was like, you are the next Mark Zuckerberg. Like you are going to be the next billion multi-billion dollar business. Like a distinction she made, which was helpful is you're not an asshole. You're just busy because you, all of these huge funds are throwing money at you and you're building this huge company that's going to be the next big brand. Right. So, it's like get yeah. on the train or, or go away, get yeah. out of the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even if you're like, please invest <laughs> yeah. inside. The you're like, you just yeah. invested 25,000. Oh my God. But like, you don't yeah. say that. Totally. Totally. I had actually one of the biggest funds that invested in my company. I went, I had, I didn't have any other meetings that day in San Francisco and I came up and I pitched them and towards the end, I was like, well, listen, guys, I got to run. I got a really big day today. Like I got a lot of meetings and they're like, oh, who are you going to see? And I was like, you know, the usual suspects. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, don't know and I wasn't going to lie and make, like, make things up, but I was going to yeah. let them know there were others, you know? And I was like, all right, I got to go. And they're like, okay, okay. Well, thank you so much, Philip. The next day I'm in a parking lot about to walk into this pitch a vendor I get a call from them and I'm on speakerphone and they've got all their, their whole team there. And they're like, Lee, we just wanted to let you know, are you sitting down? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, we decide we're going to do it. We're going to invest. I think it was like 250 K. And I was like, okay, cool. 
great. Thanks guys. Got to run into this meeting. I'll send you the paperwork. Da, da, da. Like, and I hung up and I screamed in my car. Like I screamed. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> oh my God. identical story. we like, we got this advice, like, you know, show up, like, don't be an asshole. Don't show up 10 minutes late, but show up like three, five minutes late. So I'm like going to this pitch in like, yeah, whatever, like somewhere in Palo Alto. And I'm like on the phone pacing outside of the um, last door so they can see me like busy on the phone. I'm literally just telling my co-founder, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. <laughs> and then go in, same deal, right? Got to go to Sand Hill Road, have some other meetings, go to a coffee shop nearby. They call later. They're like, we're doing it. And I'm like, all right, well, I got to talk to Jenna, my co-founder, you know, like you're pretty late in the game. I'm not sure, you know, let me chat with her. We don't know if we can let you in. And I, Jenna couldn't understand me when I called her because I was so giddy. And like, I think I was crying out of happiness. Like, you know, it's like, sure, maybe we'll think about it. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Can we, can we come in the round? Let me see if there's some room. I'll get back to you. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Fundraising is a game of urgency and setting timelines and hurting cats and extreme, extreme confidence in yourself and in your business. And it's okay to doubt yourself, but you can't in front of investors, basically, until they write the check. (laughs) Then they're in the trenches with you. And then hopefully you have a decent relationship with them that you can be vulnerable. Those are the best investors to have. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So what's next for Harper Wild? I know you guys had this um, brawl that was out of stock called Fuck Your Laws, which is pretty badass. So I'm sure, yeah. Want to tell us about that? Oh, yeah. Um, That one is extremely badass. So we have unfortunately brought that back from the past, but we are happy to do it in this environment to make sure that we are standing for um, a lot of people's values and what they believe in. So our bra that says fuck your laws on it, we're donating a hundred percent of the proceeds right now to the rap group um, and they support women's reproductive rights. And so we're very proud to be donating hundred percent of those proceeds from every bra sold and we cannot keep them on the shelf. So we have a feeling that other, other people um, feel like they need to to support that cause as well right now. So we have hats that say it as well, because a lot of people were going to marches and just loved it. I got the pink one, the pink hat. I don't know if there's other colors, but the fuck your laws, pink hat. Yep. 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 We can't keep those in stock either. So we're just continuing to produce those. We, we do a number of different capsules, we call them that have a broader purpose to them. So as you mentioned earlier, the bras are amazing. They're these great, really, really comfort first bras, but our company is bigger than just selling great bras at a great price point. Our slogan is lift up the ladies because we want to build the next generation of leading ladies. Um, And Jenna and I first talked about that when we went and visited our vendor overseas for the first time we were in business school and wanted to make sure it was actually legit. We're having a glass of wine on the, on the porch of the hotel. And, you know, we said, okay, are we really starting a bra company? And if so, what is this really about? You know, if we sell a shit ton of bras, are we going to be happy when it's really hard? What's going to keep us motivated? And what we thought about was, you know, this is really about empowering women. We have these friends. One of my best friends is a surgeon and she was telling me her bra is so old. Her straps were completely stretched out. She's literally saving someone's life and her bra strap is falling down and it's bothering her. I'm like, we need to get these 
women a better bra and we need to get them a bra that they're actually willing to buy when you need to replace it. And we said, okay, how can we think bigger than just about this group of women today in the workforce? And thought, okay, how, how can we build the next generation? And what we learned was that girls, way more so than boys, have a tough time getting access to education. So generally, so outside of the, or in addition to things like fuck your laws, we donate 1% of our proceeds to Girls Inc. So that's, that's like the bigger lift up the ladies theme of the company. And so what we found was that wasn't just important to Jenna and me, that was important to people who came and worked for us. And more than anything, it was important to a lot of people in the U.S. today. And um, a lot of our customers come to us because we're not just great bras at a great price, but we stand for what they believe in. And that's been really cool to see play out. So we have a number of different capsule programs of these embroidered bras where a portion of the proceeds go to support another cause. And so we'll continue doing a lot of those. And then we have a lot of new products on the way as well. So I can't say what they are. I can't say you can't even give a little hint, hint. We're expanding into some really exciting holiday stuff around Q4 this year. And then we've got some new colors that just launched in the last week that are limited editions. Those won't be there that long either. Fun, fun, fun. Awesome. Well, do you have any, um, before we wrap up, any final advice for any entrepreneurs out there thinking about taking the leap into entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think that actually in what you just said is what comes to mind, that that it is a big leap or that it has to be a big leap. What someone in business school really ingrained in us was that you can actually take a lot of smaller steps before you take a big leap of faith. And so a lot of what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the surveys that we ran, the focus groups that we had just helped inform whether we should actually start this company or not. I think there are, and you know, that's a physical product company where we had to manufacture and import tons of bras to start. So imagine what you can do if it's more of a tech product, you know, you can actually build a lot and test a lot before you take any kind of big leap. I think the other piece is just, you know, when someone says something can't be done or shouldn't be done, really try to weigh it against your gut and what you know and are learning. Sometimes there's a lot to learn from that on why they're saying no. Oftentimes there is, but that doesn't necessarily mean it should stop you in your tracks and you shouldn't move forward. As I said earlier, oftentimes there's something in that that has stopped others from going down that path. And there could be a really big opportunity because no one else has done it before. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for being on the show and sharing all of your valuable insights and piece of advice. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.